All right. Um, so in our in our text today, we're going to break it up into four sections, which are really um, four observations of life under the sun. They're essentially like Proverbs. They kind of sound like um, they come from Solomon's other book, the book of Proverbs. Um, my hope for us today is that we can get beyond just kind of a surface level understanding of these words um, where we say, okay, I kind of understand what that means. Um, so I'm going to try and illustrate these Proverbs, these truths for us today in ways that hopefully uh, allow us to appreciate just on a deeper level um, what the preacher is saying. So we'll unpack these four sections and then at the end we'll kind of look at how the coming of Christ, um, what God has done for us through His Son, uh, changes everything and how His coming redeems our labor and our relationships. All right, so our first section for today is going to be uh, in chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, where it says this. Then I saw that all the toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. So in our first section here, we're met with kind of two extremes and a middle, better way. The first extreme is seen right in the opening where Solomon says that all toil and all skill in work come from man's envy of his neighbor. Now, first off, when we say toil um, or work, what do we mean? Are we only referring to the times when we're at our place of employment, when we're clocked in? Uh, I don't think so. I think this really covers a much broader thing. So to work is to use the body and mind, right? Everything God's given us to accomplish a purpose, right? So when we're working, when we create, when we organize, when we maintain, when we protect, assist, really almost any verb, um, we're working. So yes, we do this at our jobs, right? But also mothers and fathers do this. Children do it at school. Um, even retired people can do this, right? So it's not just limited to when we're clocked in. Now, what Solomon is saying here is that under the sun, he has observed that we are driven to work, that that, that energy and that drive and that motivation um, to advance, right, to innovate, to create, is, we're actually driven by envy, by a jealousy of our neighbors, and I think we know this, right? Like this shouldn't be um, a super shocking thing. Maybe we don't always admit it to ourselves, but we have many terms in our society, I think, for this kind of phenomenon we see. Uh, what do we call it when we're trying to stay equal, if not ahead of our neighbor's possessions? Right? Keep it up with the Joneses. I was at a garage sale uh, with a friend um, a few weeks ago. And he found a guy selling his top-end vintage hi-fi stereo, right, for listening to music. It was made in the 70s, and I'll spare you all the, like, nerd talk about how many watts it puts out and how awesome it was um, and how cool it looked. And I'll just cut straight to the price tag. $2,500 at a garage sale, right? So you know, like, the original price was probably just insane, like new car money. And I remember seeing it and thinking to myself, who in the world would buy this? Like, I, I can appreciate how cool this thing is, but who in the world would put that kind of money into this? Well, my friend did. So he kind of haggles the guy down a little bit, 
because the guy wasn't having it. He was old and he didn't care whether it sold or not. And my buddy gets it and he sends it to his tech and he gets kind of the electronics looked through and things are placed and it brings it home. And I'm kind of going, man, that's a lot of money you spent. And he, he goes, well, why don't you bring some of your records? Why don't you come over and we'll listen to them? Like records, you know, well, you know, the sound of it, you know how it's supposed to sound. And, you know, we'll see what you think after you listen to it. So I did that. And while I'm sitting there in his living room, I'm just kind of like, okay, stop talking. Like, let me listen to music. And I, I slowly find my heart changing, right? You know, a couple, couple days before, I'm kind of like, well, you know, who would ever buy this? But I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, I might need one of these. <laughs> you know? And, uh, I, you know, I was happy with my setup, very happy, like an hour ago. And now I'm not so sure. You know, I found myself starting to be less excited with what I had and beginning to kind of be jealous of what my buddy, I guess not kind of, for being real, just straight up jealous of what my buddy had. And I start to calculate, like, how many birthdays do I need to give up to get one of these things? Or preferably, like, a little bit better, you know? Um, I think we've all done this, right? Maybe it was a, a toy when we were a kid. Um, some people, it's a truck, right? I go to Shell, like, in the middle of the night, and everybody's having, like, a tall truck contest to see who, um, we call it when Lapine bleeds up to Sun River in the middle of the night. Hope that's not too offensive, but it's true. Um where am I? Okay. We don't want to be outdone, right? And sometimes we don't even know what we want until our neighbor gets one, right? If they get a jet ski, it's like, you know, what? I didn't think I was a jet ski person, but I really, they look so fun, you know, um, or a pool, right? That was one when I was growing up, it seemed like everybody didn't have a pool and all of a sudden everybody's building pools. And it's like, you know what? I am like a pool person, I think. <laughs> We call this, like we said, keeping up with the Joneses, right? We make a lifestyle out of this. We call it the rat race. Like how many of us, you know, are from Southern California? Don't raise your hand because we'll judge you for it. But, um, you know, the rat race, right? Hey, why'd you leave California? Oh, the rat race. Had to get out of the rat race. It's like, well, good luck. Now you're in Central Oregon. So anyway, all right. This is one extreme, right, that the preacher um, is reminding us is vanity and a striving after the wind. It may keep our economy strong, right? But it's not going to bring us like lasting joy or peace or certainly not meaning. In verse 5, the preacher warns us kind of about the other extreme. Every time the wind blows my pages, I'm just going to remind myself that you guys are happy there's wind, right? Okay, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to allow it for you guys. All right. Um, in verse 5, he says, The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Now, this is kind of an odd thing to say, but it puts a powerful image in our minds, right? We imagine someone just giving up, dropping out, and refusing to work. It seems that the hope of this person is to avoid, right, the, the mistake that the first person is caught in, where they're just always trying to get more and keep up with everybody. Um, but this is also a trap, the preacher tells us. Far from being wise and avoiding the trap of keeping up with the Joneses, this person refuses to work and ends up eating their own flesh, um, which this just means that no longer able to buy bread, they consume themselves. And I think we can take this statement in a few different ways, um, but before we get into that, it's important we are reminded that God created us to work and to enjoy the fruits of our labor. In Genesis 2, it says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden 
to work it and to keep it. And remember, this is Genesis 2. The fall comes in Genesis 3. So work predates the fall. Now, God worked in creation, and we were created in his image, right? We were created to work. I think it's important for us to understand this so we understand Solomon's advice here and other places uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes regarding work. So the problem really isn't with work, it's with sin and the consequences of it. Remember what God said to Adam after they had sinned. He said, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So sin isn't the cause of our work. Right? I want that to be clear, but sin does frustrate our labor and make it more difficult to enjoy, right? Thorns and thistles. Now, knowing that we were designed to work, let's return to Solomon's words that the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. What happens when we refuse to work? We destroy ourselves. Now, there are problems um, with refusing to work. Without work, we are unable to provide for ourselves and for others around us. We have nothing to offer them. Another problem um, that I thought about these last few weeks is that it leaves us with too much free time, right? We're familiar with the old saying, idle hands are the devil's workshop. With too much time on our hands, our nature is to kind of turn inward, right? Rather than working and providing for ourselves and others, we're left to focus all day on ourselves. This can lead to depression and anxiety as we obsess about our own thoughts and feelings all day. Like we weren't created to always be looking in, especially not for for the answers. Now this can lead to a journey into self that actually leads away from God and other people. It leads to an eating of our own flesh. I think sometimes um, we get this idea that paradise would be kind of like laying on like a chaise lounge with people bringing us grapes, you know, and like our favorite drinks or whatever. Like maybe for a day, that would be cool. Um, But the scriptures tell us like that is not what we were created for and, and we would not find happiness in that. So Solomon here helpfully offers us a better way than these two extremes by saying this. He says, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. So the middle way is to be satisfied with what God has given you. The work and the rewards. So sure, work hard, prosper, enjoy. But we're never to forget that all this comes from God. And it is only from Him that satisfaction and meaning come. Not from you know, a bigger truck uh, or refusing to work. Now, in chapter 2 in Ecclesiastes um, that we studied, I guess it was almost a little over a month ago now, Solomon says this. He says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or have enjoyment? Apart from him, who can eat and have enjoyment? In our next section... We're going to deal with another pitfall of how we relate to work and the rewards that come from it. So in verse 7 here. 
All right. The preacher says, again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with his riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. So the picture here is of a person who is alone in the world, yet works and works without ever having understanding of what all this work is for. The God-given enjoyment that we read about just a minute ago in Ecclesiastes 2 eludes him. He's unable to enjoy what he has, so he works day in and day out, but his eyes are never satisfied with riches. So it is never enough. He always wants more. And this, the preacher says, is vanity and an unhappy business. Now this obsession with wealth and a desire for more reminds me of different characters in the book, The Hobbit. Any Tolkien fans here? They were slow to admit it. They're very like, it's cool. Tolkien's cool, guys. I didn't say like Marvel or something. Anyway, okay. I like Marvel. Hey, moving on. Before I get in trouble. All right, in this book, there's a character, Bilbo, right? Which is just fun to say, Bilbo. Goes on an unlikely adventure to recover the dwarves' vast treasures of gold that are buried under a mountain, right? And the problem, if you read the book, is that not only is there gold under that mountain, but sleeping on top of that gold, as if it was a comfortable bed, is a dragon, and we are told that this dragon is consumed by his love of treasure. He doesn't want to part with even a single coin. And in the book, they call this dragon sickness. But it doesn't only take over the hearts of dragons, but also of men. So the love of money and treasure infects people and causes them to do crazy things that are out of character for them. One guy steals, uh, the master of the town steals a bunch of the town's gold and ends up dying out in the wilderness, clutching his treasure. The dwarf king, after recovering all this gold from the dragon, loses his mind and pushes all his friends and family away. He was so worried about losing some of the gold that he couldn't even enjoy the victory. He was consumed by his riches. I think we're all vulnerable to dragon sickness, right? We're all capable of being consumed by money. Maybe you aren't interested in sleeping on a bed of gold. I don't know. I don't know your whole life or whatever, but many times in our lives, we let money control our decisions. It seems that we are almost unable to make a decision about anything without first considering the money question, right? What career should I choose? When should I get married? Who should I marry? Uh, where should I live? And kind of the list kind of goes on. People who would never have considered leaving Central Oregon a few years ago are now kind of seeing what their neighbors' houses are selling for and eyeing the exits. And I'm not trying to call anybody out. I certainly don't have anybody in mind. Um, it's not a sin to move or sell property or anything like that. I just, I'm just trying to show that part of the way that we may deal um, with the love of money, this, this may be what it looks like for some of us, is that we consider money first. And often in the name of good stewardship, which is certainly a biblical principle, but I think sometimes we can kind of get those muddy because we're sinners. 
Do we seek the kingdom of God first, as Jesus said in Matthew 6? Or do we seek financial stability first, or financial independence or freedom first, and serve God with what's left? This is kind of something that, that challenges me on a daily basis. We know that where our treasure is, our heart will be also. Now, this is an area where everyone really must search their own hearts, right? And consider this for themselves. What's right for me may not be right for another person. Um, but many of us are blessed with the ability to work and live where we want to. We can choose our jobs and our houses um, within a certain amount of you know, degrees. And with much freedom here, we should be mindful of God and seek his kingdom first. So how do we avoid this dragon sickness? What does it look like um, for us to steer clear of that? I think it, we work to share the rewards of our labor with others. And, and when we do, we find that the deepest reward for our toil is found in sharing its fruits with others. It's because God designed it this way, right? When we hoard riches or rewards from our labor, we're breaking with God's design. An interesting word comes from Paul in his counsel to hopefully former thieves uh, in Ephesians 4, where he says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So our labor and rewards are meant to be shared. And if we lose sight of this, we end up serving the wrong master. Now these last few weeks, as I thought about this picture of a man just working himself mad, with no one to share it with. I kept being hit with a phrase that sounds like a proverb, um, but instead is just borrowed from a book. And it says, happiness is only real when shared. Take a moment to think of the happiest times of your life. Are you thinking of them? Are you alone in those memories? Are you laying on a chaise lounge with grapes? You know, <laughs> I've never done that. I need to try, Marcy, we need to try that. Okay. Um, maybe it is great. I don't know. Odds are you're not alone in those memories. Odds are you're surrounded by the people you love, um, enjoying the fruits of your labor. Our toil and our rewards our toil and the rewards are gifts from God. They were created good and are best enjoyed when shared. Okay, now we're going to do something a little bit unusual here, but follow me. We're going to jump in our text to verses 13 to 16. We're going to jump over 9 to 12. Um, I promise we'll come back. Someone in Lapine confessed to me after the sermon, like, I was really worried when you jumped over it. Like, I'm coming back. Like, it's going to be okay. Um It'll make sense when we get there. The putting, putting 9 through 12 last will give us uh, an opportunity to kind of put everything in perspective at the end. All right, verses 13 to 16. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison 
to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with the youth that was to stand in the king's place. There was no end to all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Okay, this section reads a bit awkwardly. Um, some of your translations, you may be like, what? What did you just read? Uh, it reads a bit awkwardly because of the pronouns used and the question of whether or not um, Solomon is referencing another story in Scripture. If you study this section in Bible commentaries, you'll kind of hear a lot of people trying to pin this story into the narrative of Joseph or another biblical figure. Um, there's even discussion over whether verse 14 is referring to the poor and wise youth or the old and foolish king. Uh, but for our time today, we'll focus on what we do know. I believe the observation, the point that Solomon's making here is clear without getting into those questions. So this section points us at two different truths, right? The first one is the importance of teachability. And the second one is the vanity of political progress. So the picture here is of two people, right? One is a, a poor but wise youth, and the other one is an old but foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Sometimes there is wisdom in the youth, right? Sometimes there is foolishness in the old. Sometimes we actually see the young have the right answers. Now, if that ruffles you a little bit, consider this. Those of you who are older now, do you remember when you were young feeling like you knew how to make things better? Do you remember being frustrated that it seemed like it was the older people who held all the power, all the ability to change anything? Now that you're older, doesn't it seem like young people today can't be trusted? <laughs> the cycle of young and old and questions of wisdom and foolishness is part of the vanity that the preacher's getting at here. Now let's be clear, he's not saying that the young are always wise, right? Or that the old are always foolish. He's saying that even when one is wise, the other often can't hear it. Even those who start wise may end up as fools. And, and we see this, right? We live in a society where we use generational nicknames as slurs, right? You've heard the phrase, okay, boomer. Uh, or maybe, you know, these millennials, they're ruining everything, right? I've heard that in conversations here at church, and I'm just kind of standing there like, do they not know? Like, I'm one of these millennials. And I've done it too. I've made generalizations about other generations, lumped everybody together and criticized it. But even this isn't new, right? In the mid-60s, there was a saying among civil rights advocates said, don't trust anyone over 30. Does anybody ever remember that or hear that one? Yeah, <laughs> don't trust anyone over 30, which I don't know why, but that makes me laugh. It's just like, that's funny. When, when Marcy and I, uh, we live in a bus and when we moved in, Years ago, I wanted to get a bumper sticker that said that, like on the back, because I just thought it was funny and provocative and, I don't know, stir something up. Don't trust anybody over 30. And uh, But, like, what do I do now that I'm 34, right? You just, like, keep crossing them out in, like, 31, 32, and just add another year on my birthday? It'd be, it would be cool, but... Um, 
I saw a political cartoon the other day that showed kind of in one frame, it was like kind of some hippies and they were like, don't trust anyone over 30. And it was like, they were grown up and they were older now. And they were like, don't trust anyone under 30. And I was like, that seems about right. We, we see this generational angst, right? And this isn't anything new, um, but it works against our desire to make lasting changes in our society. Our inability to listen, uh, to consider, and take others' counsel is a weakness that leads us into trouble. The truth is that we need each other. And if we dismiss the experiences and, ex- and perspectives of others, excuse me, perspectives of others, we're robbing ourselves of understanding. The unteachable heart says, there's no wisdom that I lack and nothing that others can offer me that I need to hear. And this is a tragedy. You know, as I've said, we see this generationally. Um, We see it between different social classes. We see it in our discussions on race. Uh, We see it in our almost total inability to talk about politics uh, in any way that resembles loving. You know, our different understandings and, and inability to take advice or learn from others has often left us divided from our neighbors. The preacher goes on to speak about the king and he says, There was no end to all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. So the story here is of a a young, wise, and promising leader who replaces an older and foolish king, and he has momentum on his side, right? Coming from humble beginnings and rising to the highest office of the land, highest position of the land, And it seems like things are going to change and get better and be different under his rule. But Solomon tells us that those who come later will not rejoice in him. Does this sound familiar? I mean, it seems like every decade a leader comes along and promises hope or change or to make things great again. And people get excited, right? They scream and cheer. And yet years later, after some distance, in some ways it seems that not much has really changed, or maybe not nearly as much as we had hoped or thought would. The excitement fades, and we prepare to fall in love with another charismatic leader, hoping they will fix our broken world. We seem caught in a cycle, and I think this is what the preacher is getting at today, and he says it's vanity and a striving after wind. Okay, let's back up to verse 9. See, I promised. All right. Two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man may prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Two are better than one, says the preacher. Now I counted four reasons that two are better than one. They have a good reward for their toil. If one falls, the other can lift them up. Two can keep warm together, and two can withstand an adversary. 
Now let me illustrate the value of these four reasons with a story. A few years ago now, my grandmother passed away, um, went home to be with Jesus, praise God. And I remember when I got the call from my dad that she had passed away. He had asked me how quickly I could get to him in St. George, Utah, so that we could travel uh, to my grandfather in Phoenix. And we were up here at the time. And I talked to Marcy about it, and then I headed out that evening. Now, the fastest way to get to St. George um, is to go through Nevada and to drive on Highway 50, which we used to call Desolation Highway. But the signs on the road as you're driving say the loneliest road in America, which is just bad marketing. Like, <laughs> But it's true. You're driving on this road, and there's very few towns. You're kind of wondering if you're ever going to see a gas station again. You'll pass a sign that's like, the next gas, 200 miles. And you're like, I have half a tank. Like, How's this going to go? And I can remember being on this road and feeling extremely alone. I drove overnight, and there just weren't many people on the road. And I'm not usually alone, right? Like I said, Marcy and I live in a bus, so it's like less than 300 square feet of together all the time. You know, we're always together. And on my trip, about the time the cell service went out, I started to realize, like, I am all alone. And I found myself wishing for a companion for these very reasons uh, that Solomon shares with us today. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. I drove 13 hours straight through the night, and it really would have been better to have a co-pilot, someone to share the driving with. Two are better than one because if one falls, the other can lift them up. What if something happens to me? What if I choke on one of my sunflower seeds? <laughs> Is that funny? I don't know. Uh, that's how I stay awake. Anyway, uh, what if I run out of gas, right? There's no cell service. Like, I didn't have a backup plan. Two are better than one because two can keep warm together. I started to think about this on the road. What if the car breaks down? And it won't start. And like the heat, I can't turn the heater on. I'm in the middle of the desert. Like it freezes at night. Like I don't, again, praise God, like I made it. I'm here, you know, right now. So I made it. Don't be worried. But it, I was alone. And lastly, two are better than one because two can withstand an adversary. Um, as far as I was aware, there wasn't a lot of adversaries on the road um, that night, except perhaps sleepiness, right? That's kind of the enemy when you're driving through the night. And how much easier is it to stay awake and alert when there's someone to talk to? Now, these four reasons that two are better than one apply to many relationships, right? They apply to a friendship, coworkers, business partners, and I would say especially to a marriage. In Genesis 2, God is creating, and the Bible tells us that God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will create. I will make a helper fit for him. So again, even before the fall, before Adam and Eve rebelled against God and brought a curse on everyone born since, God created us for community. As the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit coexisted for all eternity, we were created in the image of God to be together. 
God said, two is better than one. Now, after the fall, our need for others increased. While our ability to do life together, um, to get along, was made challenging by our sin. What happens when broken people try to be friends or family or spouses? Friction. Sometimes we prefer to avoid the trouble and go it alone, right? Sometimes we get the idea that we'd be better off if everyone would just leave us alone. Even as I said that, like it rolled off my tongue well, like I've said, just leave me alone. Like it's, some of us I think have that in us. A great example of this is teenagers, right? Do you remember what it was like to be a teenager? I do. I remember thinking that all of my problems were caused by my teachers or my parents, mostly my parents, and I had great parents. That's the irony of it. (laughs) They're awesome. But I really believe that if everyone would just get off my back for a while, I would succeed. I didn't need anybody else. And I have an embarrassing example of this, but like, don't judge me for this story, okay? I told this story in Lapine, and they like it's supposed to be a funny story, and they all were like, "Oh," and I was like, "That's not right." Um, <laughs> okay. I was a young teenager, and I remember my dad and I were arguing about something. He had caught me doing something I wasn't supposed to do, um, and we kind of were going back and forth, yelling at each other. And at one point, in a moment of sheer frustration. He looked at me and said, I didn't raise you to act like this. And I was like, that's good. That's good. That's a good argument. Um, And I'm, you know, feeling cornered and not thinking clearly. I fired back with one of the most ridiculous things that's ever come out of my mouth. I kind of looked right in his eyes. And I thought of this. I was like, this will be good to say. And I just screamed back at him. I raised myself. (laughs) It's like raises a lot of questions of how I got through like being a baby and a toddler, how I fed myself. I, I don't know. Like, I don't know. He just, he was so confused by my claim and the boldness of it that he just kind of like looked shocked and kind of just like turned around and left the room. It was like, there's no, there's no uh, reasoning with this kid. To this day, like my dad brings it up almost every time I see him. He'll work it into like a conversation. He'll be like, hey, I know you raised yourself and everything. But do you remember like when we were kids and we took this trip? And I'll be like, dad, come on. I really thought um, at that age I would be better off alone to the point where I like reimagined my history that I always was alone. I don't know like if I was listening to music, like Hard Knock Life or something. I just thought like I would appropriate people's difficult lives. Thank you for laughing. Part of growing into adulthood is learning that we need other people, right? The solitary utopia that we sometimes imagine um, would be fleeting at best. It wouldn't last. And we're better off when we are in community. Two are better than one, says the preacher. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, what is this threefold cord? Um, It can be applied in many ways. I think because the author's point is simply that two are better than one and three is even better. At my wedding, it was applied to Marcy and I and God. 
Um, I've heard it applied to two believers who share Christ in common um, or the Trinity, um, which are all great applications, but there are many because it's just a general principle um, the preacher's putting forward. All right. Now that we've considered uh, the wisdom of our passage from kind of an under-the-sun perspective, let's dig a little deeper and consider what this text has for us as Christians, right, as followers of Christ. Perhaps there is a greater fulfillment of this wisdom that can illuminate our understanding of the work of Christ uh, and everything he has done for us. When we read our Bibles, it is helpful to look at what we're reading through the lenses of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Um, That's what we call a hermeneutic, um, a way of reading scripture. And these words represent kind of the overarching theme of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. So considering these four major points in scripture help us to understand how to make sense of what we're reading. Um, It's just a helpful way to study different topics in our Bibles. So today we're talking about work and our relationships with others. But whatever we're, we're topic we're looking at, we can ask these four questions, right? How was it created? How did it fall? How did Christ redeem it? And how will it be restored? And as we read through our passage today, we've already kind of considered how God created us to work. And he also created us to be in relationship with himself and others. We've also looked at some of the ways that the fall into sin has frustrated our labor and caused us to chase after work and riches to satisfy the pain of the real tragedy of the fall, um, which is the destruction of our relationship with God and with others. And now we find ourselves standing before a righteous God, guilty and deserving of wrath. And this, I think, is where the story of redemption comes in. Let's consider the preacher's words that two are better than one, but this time looking through the lens of Christ. In this fallen world, we find ourselves alone and in need. We find ourselves separated from others and separated from our Creator because of our sin. The ultimate two is better than one is found in our relationship with Jesus. So let's return to these four reasons that two are better than one, but this time considering our relationship with God through his son. All right, two are better than one because they have good reward for their toil. Now the beauty of the gospel, right, the good news, is that we receive the good reward for Christ's work. He does the work and we receive the benefit. One of my favorite Bible verses tells us that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That means on our behalf, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus worked and we receive the reward of his labor through faith in him. Two are better than one because if one falls, the other can lift him up. And we do fall. We sin. We are not perfect, and yet in Christ we can be confident that he will help us back up. Hebrews tells us that, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Two are better than one because two can keep warm together. God will not leave you out in the cold. What did Jesus say to his disciples right before he ascended to the Father? He said, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is our Emmanuel, our God with us. And lastly, two are better than one because two can withstand an adversary. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus conquered sin, death, and the devil for us. The good news is that he has already won. Remember what our Bible tells us. Paul tells us, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created being shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate those who believe in Jesus from God. We are His. He saves us and teaches us how to love one another. And we look forward to the restoration of all things. We look forward to the day when we will be in the presence of God together. One of the great promises of God is that all things will not always be this way. Our labor will not always be plagued with thorns or thistles. One day our labor will be to serve God and to worship Him in heaven. One day those who have been redeemed by the Son, a great multitude, our Bible tells us, will be gathered together with our Creator. So let me end this time in God's Word today uh, with a short reading from the book of Revelation speaking to God's people, or speaking of God's people. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time in your word this morning. Help us to value our work. Help us to value our relationships. And most of all, help us to value our relationship with you. In Jesus' name.